You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, good morning. I uh, am about to begin with a surprise. I hate doing things that kind of bring sudden attention, but this has been required. So (laughs) I have to have glasses. Uh, uh, 15 years ago, I had a, a surgery done that fixed it all. And um, we remember 15 years ago, uh, maybe 16, because I had a type of surgery where I was practically blind in one eye and then the other for a little while. Uh, I was not a candidate for LASIK. And uh, I remember it distinctly because Jenny and I were at uh, the Tennessee basketball game when Lofton hit that shot over Durant. I couldn't see a thing. I said, Jim, what happened? And I was sitting in the crowd. I'm like, what happened? I couldn't see. And so I vividly remember the date of it. But fast forward to today, uh, the last six months or so, I have been having the worst headaches. I'm adjusting, like I can't see you guys out there, and then I'm forcing myself as I read the passage. So um, let's be honest, I look like Ryan Reynolds a little bit. Uh, I take that as a no. (laughs) All right, like Doug said, we're beginning a new series, and uh, I wanna begin with two words, efficiency and convenience. Everybody in this room is wired for it, and we chase it. We crave it. Um, show of hands, how many people in here find yourself normally riding in a passenger seat? Show of hands, like if you're riding together with people. Man, those of you drive. Uh, the men in the room, let's, let's do this. How many men in the room ever ride in a passenger seat? Bam, I got both hands. I, I do. Uh, so when, when, when Jenny and I are riding together and I'm in the passenger seat, like let's say we're on a two-lane highway, it's pretty packed. And I see a stoplight off in the horizon. And uh, she gets closer and I notice that, that she's getting in the lane that's most packed, you know? I'm like, I'm wired for efficiency and convenience. I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing? You're like, you, you've wasted 30 seconds of my life right here. <laughs> um, and another true fact is when we head home, if we're in the car together and we're leaving from church to home, uh, we just live kind of behind UT Hospital area. We take some back roads. And when I drive, common sense, the most convenient and efficient way is to uh, go to the end of this little back road and take a left. And not Jen. When, when Jen's going home, um, I'm, I'm sitting in the passenger. She takes like this other left before the left and then takes a different right and hits speed bumps. And my speed bumps on my side aren't as big, but, but she takes speed bumps. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're like, this is not efficient, not convenient. And she's like, do you want to drive, right? Which is true. Um, we're all... We all crave efficiency and convenience. You do too. It's not just me. I pick on me, but, but we all do. Um, you think about when you go to the grocery. You just got to get something quick. And so you kind of go right where the spots, uh, the groceries are that you need. You gather them together. You get back out. And you run up to the counter and you see lines. You're looking for the lines that are open. Uh, not only are you paying attention to the people in the line, uh, you're paying attention to how long the line is. In addition, if you're... Uh, really efficient, uh, you're looking to see how much they got in their cart, and you're picking a line. And so you do the math, you pick a line, and the entire time you're in the line, if I'm in the line, I'm evaluating, did I pick the right line? Um, and, and by the time you get to the front, you're next in line. Uh, how does it feel when you see, you got chatty Kathy talking uh, to the person that's ringing everybody, oh, I'd be like, oh. um, or someone, you know, pulls out coupons, and you're just total fail, right, on your end. So when it comes to those two words of 
convenient and efficient. I just want you to know we're trained to grow in it. We're educated in it. You think about it. It's part, it's part of how you grow. Um, and, and so those words make it difficult on behalf of this series. Uh, this series is all about what it looks like to look out for people around us. Uh, sure, there's a word for it. It's called compassion. But compassion is looking out for people around us. Uh, and if you think about it, the two enemies of compassion are efficiency and convenience. Because when you get tied in with someone that's bogged down, you have to slow down. It's not efficient. It's not convenient. You've you got to run their, their pace. Uh, you've got to run their speed. And this is why what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks is so important, yet it's so difficult. Like, in order for us to go this route as followers of Jesus, God's got to do a work in our heart, a fresh work. So we see people through the eyes of Jesus, and we listen to people thoroughly with, with the ears of Jesus, and, and we have the mind of Christ, and we respond like Jesus. And oftentimes, that is inconvenient, and it is inefficient. One of the things that, that I'll give you an example on, uh, many in this room have started to use this thing on your phone. Please do not disturb, right? It's a notification. Uh, this notification, um, by the way, it's, it's handy. It's, it means the world on the phone, okay? Uh, in a sense, it's your way of saying, leave me alone. Don't call back. Don't keep texting. I don't want to be bothered. I'm trying to, be, to, to unplug. And I am busy, right? Now, now, it makes sense for the phone at times in life. But unfortunately, um, many of us, in how we go about our day, it's almost like we wear that sign, do not disturb, around our neck. Because we're wired for efficiency. We're wired for convenience. And this series is an attempt to perhaps not just take the sign off our neck, but to change the words from do not disturb to please disturb. And today I want us to begin this series with an Old Testament story. Um, it's found, uh, the setting is a thousand years before Jesus is born. And it's going to begin with a woman named Naomi. Uh, Naomi lives in Bethlehem, which is about uh, five miles or so from Jerusalem, but it's in Israel. And it's going to, the story will center on Naomi and her travels. Um, while she's in Bethlehem with her family, there's a famine that hits Israel. A famine means no rain, no food, no crops. And so they have to make a decision. The family decides to move. They leave from their area of Bethlehem and travel, travel to Moab, which is uh, around 90 miles. And they make a road trip to take care of themselves. You'll find out in the story that there's some characters. Her husband's name is Elimelech. Uh, her name is Naomi, and she's got two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, as you read just at the beginning, you'll find out we're, we are told their names, we are told their town, and we're told their circumstances. But there is a sudden tragedy that happens literally abruptly in the story, just three verses into Ruth chapter 1. Naomi's world falls apart. Listen to verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she's left with her two sons. Her husband dies. We're not sure how. Maybe it was sudden. Maybe they had expected it. Nevertheless, he died. But thankfully, Naomi's got two sons. They're still in Moab. 
The two sons decide to marry. Uh, one marries a lady named Orpah. The other son marries a woman named Ruth. Uh, Ruth is the title of this book because slowly in a minute, uh, the story shifts from Naomi to Ruth becoming the, the dominant character. But ready? Suddenly, the boys die too. And the book, the book is really candid about it, kind of dry, matter of fact, to the point. And so now you have the daughters-in-law and Naomi. And you ask the question, what does Naomi have? Guys, the answer is nothing. Um, the sons are gone. The husband's gone. She's got her daughters-in-law. But in those days, it was tough to survive. It's easy to look at this story up to this point and think, man, her story's finished. Like, like it's done. But as the story unfolds, guess what? Naomi is the recipient of above and beyond beautiful compassion or someone is looking out for her in a special way. Um, that's why we've entitled this series, Everyone's Got Someone. And then the, the question that I hope we wrestle with as individuals, but also as a church, because there's an opportunity around the corner in the month of December. Everyone's got someone. Here's a question. Who's your someone? I, I've been praying already that God would bring someone to mind for each of you, uh, for each of us. And when it comes to that someone, it's someone you're willing to slow down for. Uh, someone you're willing to walk beside and make your life's mission about them. Let me give you some examples. Let's say you're a teacher and uh, you teach young kids and there's a kid in your class, it's just trouble. And so you call a parent-teacher conference and uh, parents show up. And right off the bat, dad starts just waylaying on the son, like yelling, mistreating him. And you're thinking as a teacher, if he does that publicly, I can't imagine what it's like behind closed doors. You got a soft spot. I mean, this kid might be your someone. And you realize, I may not be able to change much of their house, but I can change something in the classroom. You know, I can make sure that this kid feels valued, he feels loved, and he realizes that he's gifted. That kid's going to be her someone for this semester. Her someone sits on the second row in the third chair from the far end. Uh, or perhaps maybe in this room, uh, there's someone that's moved to Knoxville. And you've heard Knoxville's a friendly city, but this friendly city is filled with people that are busy. And they got friends already, uh, friends and family, jobs and so forth. And, and it seems like they don't have the bandwidth, bandwidth to get to know new people. And so these new people that have moved into town, you think about everything that's new for them. New city, new neighborhood, new house, new job, new class. And I can't find any new friends because everyone else's friend list is full. What would it look like if someone made that person their someone and walked beside them for a little while? Our student ministry, uh, we know our student ministry has got lots of volunteers that show up in this room on days like today. Imagine you serve in that ministry. Uh, let's say you work with ninth grade girls, and there is one girl in particular whose parents are going through a nasty divorce. Uh, they've lawyered up. It's a war zone. And you watch this girl as the parents find ways to play the girl back and forth against each other. You know, a lot can happen to a ninth grade girl's heart in that season of life while parents are going through that. And unless someone steps in and walks with her for a little while, it may take a really long time for her to repair. Or perhaps it's a young couple. 
Uh, this young couple comes to you as an elderly couple or a little bit older than them, and they ask for advice. Uh, he and she make statements like, we talk past each other. We're constantly talking down to each other. We talk over each other. Um, there is tension. Is there a word for this? I would say, yes, it's called marriage, right? And somehow, uh, it may be an opportunity for you to walk beside them. They ask for it. Sure, guess what? It's going to be inconvenient at times and inefficient at times. But what would it look like for you to walk with this couple that's vulnerable? Um, by the way, if you think about it, um, it's inevitable. Eventually, everyone will become vulnerable. Uh, I went through some hard moments of being vulnerable a few years ago with what Jen went through, with what our family went through, uh, with transitioning to be the next pastor here. Ooh, it got ugly, and thankfully, so many of you walked beside me. And, and you didn't do it just for a little bit. You did it for a long time. You walked with us. So before you see this as a message about you being a project, look, everybody faces a season in which they're vulnerable. So let's go back to Naomi. I'm going to tell you something. She's not going to just survive. She's going to thrive. She finds out that rain has returned to Israel. And with that means the crops are growing, and that's food. And she goes to her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, hey, girls, I'm going home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You too. Go back to your parents. Go back to your homeland. Orpah says, all right. Orpah cries, says her goodbye. But Ruth, Ruth responds differently. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I'm telling you, look, Ruth's saying, look, I don't care if it's inconvenient. I don't care if it's inefficient. I'm going to slow down and I'm going to walk with you. I mean, guys, these words that she, she makes, sometimes these are used at a wedding. Guys, this is deep. Ruth's saying, where you starve, I will starve. Your hardship will become mine. Your poverty will become mine. And you're not doing this alone. See, the question we could pose to Ruth is, hey, Ruth, since everyone's got someone, who's your someone? Ruth would respond, well, I'm looking out for Naomi. In other words, Ruth's willing to put a sign around her neck that says, please disturb me. Like, I know it's going to be inconvenient. I know it's going to be inefficient as we head back to Bethlehem from Moab. It's 90 miles, and Naomi's elderly. Uh, it's not just one widow. It's two widows that are making this trip. And by the end of this chapter, you can't help but wonder, how in the world are these two widows going to make it? Well, they get back home into Bethlehem. They settle down, and Ruth decides, you know what? i got to go find some food. And I want to introduce this concept that, that takes place in the Old Testament. It's called gleaning. Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, landowners would, would grow different types of wheat and uh, grain and so forth um, throughout the seasons. And gleaning meant uh, the men would, the landowner would have men that would go through with sickles and they would cut down the wheat and the wheat would fall. And behind them uh, would be the women 
and uh, some of the servants, and they would pick it up. So it was a team effort. It was dirty. It was dusty. It was hard work. It was hot. Um, and where gleaning came into the picture were those uh, that were struggling financially. This is according to Old Testament law. Uh, they could follow behind those that, that picked it up, and, and they could pick up anything that was left on the ground. Well, what, what takes place is uh, it's kind of like a scavenger mentality. It's hard work. Ruth jumps in, and she's like, I'm going to glean. Now, um, it was good to have the landowner's permission because uh, if you didn't have it, you didn't know where he'd stand. So the question is, what happens when the owner shows up of this property? Because he's not there. Uh, Will he kick her out or will he let her continue to glean and stay? Well, sure enough, the landowner shows up. His name is Boaz. Boaz is sitting there watching everyone that's working. And he's talking to his guys, says in the story. He asks the guys. He he looks over and he notices this girl. It's new. He asks him, he said, hey, who is that over there? And the guys respond, oh, that's the Moabite woman that came back to Bethlehem to help her mother-in-law. Her name's Ruth. It's Naomi's mother-in-law. So Boaz decides to call Ruth over. Can you imagine the butterflies in her stomach? Like she's nervous, afraid. Is she in trouble? And what happens next is the second story of compassion already. Uh, Like if everybody's got somebody, who's your someone, Ruth? Oh, it's Naomi. If everyone's got someone, hey, hey, Boaz, who's your someone? I think it's going to be Ruth while she's taking care of Naomi. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, it's a term of endearment. Hey, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. You stay here with the women who work for me. Verse 9. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told those guys not to lay a hand on you. Protection. And whatever, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Like, like, when you get thirsty, don't go into town. It's a long walk. When you get hot and dirty, we've got some coolers over here on the side and some cups, right? You just go over there and get something to drink. Uh, I'm going to ask everybody a question. What do you feel on behalf of the story so far? Like what Ruth did for Naomi? Golly. Incredible. And and how about what Boaz is doing for Ruth? I want to say, yes, this is good. Now, it's compelling. Look at mealtime, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain She ate all that she wanted and had some leftover. Think about it. She went from picking up leftovers to having leftovers. I wonder, in light of her story, when's the last time that Ruth had leftovers? Um, I want to use a few pictures today or images. And The first is this table. If you can imagine, let's just say it's a kitchen table at your house. Uh, these seats here, uh, say family and friends. It's the people that you and I make time for the most. Um, what's happened with Ruth is she's been invited to Boaz's table. Um, you and I, we stay so busy with, with the people here. Uh, it, it just takes up a lot of time. It's easy. We're, we're good with 
being familiar with each other. But what happens when you look way over there and you notice that table? Like that table's vulnerable. This chair represents someone that's struggling. Uh, They've been married and all of a sudden it's a divorce. They've gone through a miscarriage, job loss, death, a prolonged surgery that's scary. What would it look like if we did what Boaz did? If everyone's got someone and we recognize someone and brought them into our table. Now, this doesn't mean just a meal at the house. My prayer is that God will slowly begin to give you some ideas on how this plays out. The question is, who is your someone? Um, Well, Ruth, after this dinner, goes back to Naomi's place. And she's got those leftovers. And Naomi's like, where'd you get all that? And Ruth just spills. And she's like, oh, you would believe it. All this stuff happened. Um, She includes a detail that we can't afford to miss in verse 21. Ruth, the Moabite, said, Boaz even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish finish harvesting. Look here, all my grain. See, this is cool because um, there were different types of grain for different seasons. In other words, Boaz is telling Ruth, hey, you're here for the long haul. It's not one and done. It's ongoing. It's what we said last week. It's the beauty of repetition. Everybody's got someone. Ruth's going to be his someone. And he's going to do something. He's not just going to make a meal for her. Guys, he's going to create an opportunity that he's going to walk beside her for a very, very long time. Another analogy, another image. Don't laugh. I'm watching everybody. This is my first bike, all right? Uh, The only thing that was different when I got it... (laughs) It had like pom-poms hanging up the side. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, because I'm a man, I I cut them off. (laughs) Um, But this is what I had the privilege of learning to ride on. Now, think back to you and when you learned to ride a bike. Uh, Let's see. Maybe you had training wheels at the beginning. Maybe you didn't. Uh, After training wheels, all of a sudden it's time to, to branch out. Maybe you help your kids with this. Typically what happens is an adult runs beside you until you get balance. What's happening in this story is Boaz tells Ruth, hey, I wanna stick with you until you get your balance. So you're here all season. Like, Ruth, I know it may take a while. And to us in this room, when we read a story like this, you think about it, it may take a while for someone to get their balance. Like, a diagnosis is tough and it's not quick. Divorces are ugly and, oh, it's painful. Depression isn't like just a week. You you think about somebody that's recovering from a hard surgery. The physical recovery is tough, but the darkness they go through for a while, man, who's going to walk with them until they get their balance? And I would ask the question, what does it look like for you and for me and for us as a church to walk beside people until they get their balance? And immediately... I'm going, to play, I'm going to play out the question that's in your mind that's been in my mind. Yeah, but how long? Because, Tim, you don't know our story. Like, like, if you want to use the bike analogy, we're no longer running beside the bike. We're carrying it, and he's still on it. And you know what, Tim? He won't even pedal. He's enjoying it. 
Tim, I, I don't know if we can do this. Matter of fact, Tim, it just seems like through his life, there's all these, these patterns of bad habits. So, so the question really isn't, yeah, Tim, how long? The question is this, how long do you help people with bad life patterns that they won't let go of? Because everybody in here can tell a story. That's a great question. That's the real question. Well, if that's the case, we probably ought to peek at what Boaz says and ask a question. Why does Boaz help Ruth? Um, The answer may not solve your current situation of someone that you feel like you're doing too much for and they're stuck or they're not going anywhere. This answer may not solve it, but it may bring clarity for you. Um, It may shed light and give some information on how long. Chapter 2, verse 10, I intentionally skipped this earlier. At this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked Boaz, why have, why? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Like, why are you looking out for me? Over the top, above and beyond kindness. And Boaz does not say because you were in need. As a matter of fact, he says something very Very beautiful. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father, your mother, and your homeland, and you came to live with the people you didn't know. In other words, hey, I heard what you did for Naomi. Everybody's got someone. Your someone was Naomi. You've taken care of her. Verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I say it again. I heard what you did for your mother-in-law. You keep helping her. I'll keep helping you. Simply put, I believe Boaz is honoring Ruth's initiative. The Old Testament laws stated when someone was gleaning, priority was given for picking up the grain that was left over, the one that had been spilled over, to a certain group of people. There were three to be exact. You read the Old Testament. When a landowner dropped it, he couldn't pick it up. It was left for widows, for orphans, and refugees. People that were forced from their homeland because of a war. And Ruth is a widow. Guys, hear me out. She's working hard because she's still capable. She is working hard. She's working hard for this food, this stuff. I'm going to press in on a side note. If I'm a 30-year-old man living in those days and this day and capable of working, I better be working. Leftovers are not for me. This is the beautiful image of Boaz Honoring a woman the best she can, even if it's in a little way, he's honoring her initiative. So we had the table, we had the bicycle. One more image, sneakers. Um, how many people in here have kids that are wanting sneakers all the time? I mean, it's like, I know they outgrow them, but, but like they're always wanting these nice ones. Um, a kid wants sneakers, but you're tired of buying sneakers. But the problem is they keep outgrowing their sneakers. 
Brilliance decides when a child says, look, I really, really, really want this pair, Dad. I think brilliance says, you know what? If you want it bad enough, I know you'll probably need it around the corner. You want this one bad enough, I'll pay half, you pay half. You know what it does? It encourages that child to work. It encourages them to handle their money well. It honors their initiative. It teaches them to save. And I guarantee if your kid wants it bad enough, they'll become a miser, right? For the people in your life that it's tough right now, and you're just not sure if you're just helping them stay stuck or not, just a real-world question from this story is, do you see any initiative in their life in some form or fashion? Or is everything that you keep doing, you're just causing them to stay stuck and not move anywhere? Well, let's wrap this thing up. Um, week one, everyone's got someone. Who is your someone? Let's go back to these three images just for you to leave with. A table. Think about it. I'm praying that God puts somebody on your mind or a group of somebody's in your mind. Um, Who's sitting at a chair way over there? And who could you invite to your table? Or this ugly bicycle. Um, Who's someone that you could uh, run beside, maybe for a long time, until they gain their balance? Or these shoes? Random idea on... Is there someone out there that's trying the best they can and you just want to honor their initiative? Uh, I've got to close with this. Don't forget, everyone's got someone. Who's your someone? Ready? There is one who took on himself the sins of everyone. Can you fathom that? Try to wrap your head around it. Like Jesus took upon himself the sins of everyone. And it's like so inspiring. In other words, he invited us to the table with himself, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit for a meal. When it came to the bike, he came to earth and ran beside us for 33 years helping those in that time frame gain their balance and helping us gain our balance because he promised the Holy Spirit would be with us when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. He said, oh, the Holy Spirit won't just be with you for balance. He'll be in you. So there's the table with Jesus. There's the bicycle with Jesus. What about those sneakers? I got crazy news. Nothing to learn about those speakers because there's not sneakers. There's nothing you and I can do on our part. It's a free gift. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't even come up with half. He gave the whole thing. It's a gift. By grace, it's a gift. You were saved through faith, not by works. So none of us can brag. The beauty of the sneakers, it cost Jesus everything. And as a church, we've been called to reflect the purpose and the personality of Jesus. And in a small way, 
for the weeks to come, we're just going to be reminded every, everyone's got someone. Who's your someone? With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's pray together. Um, as we're getting ready for this, I just want to ask you um, to think about who your someone could be. Just ask God to plant the seed. One of the beauties that can play out is take a step, invite them for lunch, invite them to church. My goodness. This is going to cause us to look outside of ourselves and change the notification from do not disturb to please do disturb. And by the way, it's inevitable everyone in this room will face a season when you're vulnerable. And we're all going to need people to walk beside us. So really, since 2020 was a tough year and then 2020 was kind of rebounding, uh, it's time for this church to get on offense. To have the eyes of Jesus, the ears of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the hands of Jesus. And to love people, even when it's inefficient, even when it's inconvenient. Father, I want to thank you for today. I thank you for, most importantly, there is one who took on himself the sins of everyone. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, doesn't experience faith in you, they haven't received that free gift of grace, God, I, I beg you that you would convict them of a need. God, give them the courage to walk to the front or go to the back after this song's over, just to the next steps room or the next steps wall to talk about what's next. Father, for those in this room that are thankful for that gift, I pray if they've never been baptized since they've received you, that they would get baptized. May they schedule a baptism today. God, for those that are ready to partner with a church that has this kind of heart, represents this message, I pray that tonight they would come to the class, welcome to Severe Heights. God, rally us, bring us together as we continue to shape the way this local city views a local church. And I pray this in Jesus' name.